Good morning again, Redeemer. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Acts 24. If you uh, use your phone or your iPad, uh, just get that out. We're going to uh, read through God's Word together, and then we will uh, pray and seek wisdom, and we will uh, jump in. If you're visiting with us, we've been working through the book of Acts, and Paul, we're in the stretch of Acts where Paul is just having a series of, of trials, uh, and they're actually getting more intense. Uh, the, the, the more he is under trials, the, the, the stakes are getting higher, and uh, we're going to read about that in this chapter, Acts 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and the spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, Since through you uh, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge affirming that these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for years, many years, you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But I do confess to you that according to the way, speaking of Jesus, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me or let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council? Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, 
and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Amen. Let's pray together. Uh, Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it is uh, inspired and inerrant. We thank you that all of it matters, that you came, Lord Jesus, and you said that you will not set any of it aside, but that it must all be fulfilled. We know, Lord Jesus, that all of the scripture, all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the writings, even this very book of Acts, it is ultimately about what you continue to do as king and head of the church through the Holy Spirit, through your apostles. And so, Lord, help us to see you and what you're up to, even in a passage such as this. Be a blessing to your people. Make us hearers. Make us believers. But, Lord, make us doers of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to say a few words, and I want you to think about what comes to mind. Colombo. Dragnet. Law and Order, Perry Mason, the People's Court, Judge Judy, Judge Hackett, Judge Joe Brown, O.J. Simpson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, Rodney King, O.J. Simpson, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery. What comes to mind when you hear all of those words? You should probably be thinking about court or the make-believe television shows or real-life criminal trials where we, the public, get to have a window into court proceedings where there is a judge and there are charges and there is evidence and there is a plaintiff and a defendant and a ruling. Why do I start with that? Because that's how we have to look at Acts 24. You see, they didn't have technology like cameras or videos or electricity for that matter. But what you're actually reading this morning is a real court proceeding. And you got to understand the the Roman judicial system in its day was profound. So much so that a lot of what we do with laws today that we can trace it back there and then. Did you know that in Roman judicial systems, if you made an appeal to another judge, that the the, the judge will not just accept your words. You had to have a written letter of the proceedings. What are the charges? Who, Who spoke? What did they say? What was the defense? How did you rule? Now, this this makes perfect sense because You remember last week when Paul was about to be assassinated and Lysias heard through Paul's nephew what was about to happen? 
And he sent troops and horsemen and spearmen to rescue Paul. And they escorted Paul all the way from Jerusalem to Antipatris, all the way to Caesarea, where Paul was now on guard. But did you remember that, that Paul was not sent alone? He was sent with a letter a letter from the tribunal, the local judge who's writing a letter because Paul is appealing to a higher judge and that judge is Felix. He did not send Paul there empty-handed. He wrote a letter, right? Turn to Acts 25. Go over to the next chapter. I want to show you. Look at verses 25 and 26. Now, this is now a new judge, a new governor, Festus, and he's with King Agrippa. Look at what he writes. I have found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. Verse 26. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. Now, why? Why does Lysias send a letter to Felix? Why does Festus and Agrippa need to send a letter to Caesar? It's because you could not come into Caesar's courtroom without written letters of all the rulings made for a Roman citizen under him. And what we're reading in Acts 24, Jesus has put a court case and put it right in your Bible. And I know it says that, 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 that Felix is the governor, but we should not think of Felix as a governor as we would think of our governor. Matter of fact, Paul himself calls Felix the judge. In the Roman Empire, the governor was the head of the military and a judge. And so what you have here is a trial, a trial be between the Jews Versus the Apostle Paul in the courtroom of the most excellent Felix. This is a trial. These are court proceedings we're reading. And the question we have to ask is, why, Jesus, would you put a trial in the Bible? What are we supposed to learn from this? I think the key is this. Luke told us that everything that he wrote in the Gospel of Luke is about all that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. And the book of Acts is all that Jesus continued to do from his enthroned position through the Holy Spirit at work in his apostles. That has to be how we view this passage. The question is, Jesus what are you doing in this courtroom? What are you showing us in the courtroom? And here's the big idea. Here's what I think is happening. They have no evidence against Paul. It's bogus. But what I think Jesus is doing is giving us evidence that his resurrection has relevance wherever God's people go. You put them in a courtroom and the resurrection will be a watershed, life-altering reality 
that will even change how his citizens act under trial. Now, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a character study, right? I'm going to show you, right, that, that you have this crafty lawyer and this corrupt judge. And, and, and we're going to read about a lot of people. We're going to hear about Ananias. We're going to hear about Tertullus. We're going to hear about the Jews, the elders, the scribes. We're going to hear about Felix. We're going to hear about his wife, Drusilla. And I, I want to make the case to you that if their name is not Paul, they're cut from the same cloth. Right? And so we're going to look at this crafty lawyer and this corrupt judge. They're going to be under one heading. And then we're going to look at the courageous Paul. He's different. Something about him is different. And then I want to ask how? What makes him head and shoulders more courageous, more honest, more truthful? more resolute, more hopeful. So let's look at this crafty lawyer and the corrupt judge. No offense if you are a lawyer or a judge. I'm not throwing shade at you this morning, right? I'm not, right? But these, these dudes in here, they're crafty and they're corrupt. Let's look at the crafty lawyer. Now, remember what happened last week. 40 dudes wanted to kill Paul. They took a vow. We will not eat or drink until he's dead. And it's five days later. And these dudes probably ought to be starving right now because Paul is still alive. Now, what did they do? Paul was rescued by Lysias and sent to Caesarea. Well, what did the Jews do? We're told that after five days. So what happens in Acts 24 is five days after what happens in 23. What did they do? They could not stand that Paul had been freed. And they, they realized where Paul had been sent. And so five days, they made the 70-mile journey to keep trying to put him to death. But only this time, they hired the big gun. They hired some guy named Tertullus. And our, our English Bible says a spokesman. But the best way to translate that is actually a prosecuting attorney. So they went and got an attorney and hired him to go up with them 70 miles to be their spokesman before this governor, this judge. Now, their M.O. was to make quick work of Paul. If he is dead by tomorrow, we won't eat. Right. So their whole ambition, let's move fast. Let's put him to death. And that's the same language that the lawyer uses. Look at what he says to Felix when he gets there in verse four. We don't want to detain you any further. I beg you in your kindness, hear us briefly. In other words, don't take your time. Don't deliberate on this. Don't mull this over. Make your ruling fast. Do you know who we are and who we've hired? This guy is a, a wreck. He's a menace. Do quick work with him. He's crafty. He's crafty because he is overstating Felix's accomplishments. He's using flattery to butter the judge up. Look at verse 2. Since through you we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Do y'all see how flattering that is? I have 15 books on Acts in my office. 
And every week I'm digging in them. Every single scholar said that that's a lie. Felix was notorious. Felix crucified people. Felix was a slave who, through relationships, ended up becoming a judge. John Stott says that Felix did not cause the Jews joy, that they were horrified at him. Emperor Nero, the bad emperor in Rome, said that this Felix was too barbaric. You, you hear that? And so this is, this is to butter him up. He also exaggerates and falsifies the charges against Paul and doesn't provide the witnesses to the things that he is saying. He charges Paul with being a plague to the empire. That's a loaded term. He's calling Paul a cancer to society. If you're not careful with this guy, your honor, he will infect others with that mess he's on and your whole empire will crumble. He charges Paul with being a rioter and a disruptor of the peace because he's following this sect that is a threat to you. You must remember that, that Christians believe that Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord. You must also remember that there was a famine prophesied that was happening in this region of the world in Acts 11. And Rome had too many people in their empire and not enough food. And so it was important to keep trade routes open. It was important to not have uprisings. It was important to keep order. And what this lawyer is doing is playing on the emotions of the king. He's saying, look at his track record. Do you know what happened in Philippi? There was a slave girl and she made her handlers a lot of money. But when Paul showed up, Paul rebuked that spirit and this woman was restored to her right mind. Do you want that to happen here? And what about when he went to Ephesus and the people divulged their witchcraft? They burned their books and turned the city upside down. Do you, do you know what happened with the, 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 the silversmith? Do you know that they were being put out of work because people were stopped going to the temple of Artemis? Do you really want to have to make new employees? Do you really want to have to come up with new occupations? This guy is a cancer. Everywhere he goes, there is turmoil. He charges Paul with profaning the temple. And he says, you know our temple, don't you, Felix? You know we have these feasts that these people come to every year. And you know, when they travel, they pay taxes. And when, when they pay taxes, we pay you. And so he profaned our temple. And if he is getting in the way of our religious stuff, it's going to have impact upon you. And, and we're told that all the Jews joined them. That all the Jews were giving honor to this king and robbing God of the glory of his protection. All the Jews were seeing Paul's ministry as a failure, as a cancer. 
All the Jews seeing conversions and hearing about freedom from bondage and demon possession, of hearing about divulging sorcery and less worshipers of Artemis, that all the Jews were hearing this and they were actually upset and mad and irritated. How can you not be excited when you read the book of Acts and you see the ministry of Paul? How can we not be excited about freedom and about worship? And about people worshiping the one true God. The only reason that looks like a cancer is if Jesus is not your true north and his kingdom is not your highest value. This is crafty. It is shady. And then you get to the corrupt judge. That we're told in the passage that he's married to Drusilla. Anyone alive at that time would know who she was. She was the sister of King Agrippa and Bernice that we're going to read about in the next chapter. Yes, you heard me right. An incestuous relationship between the next king and the next queen. This was their little sister that Felix was married to. And she is his third wife. She's the wife of another man, and he took her from him with his power. And then you learn he wants to bribe Paul. He said, Paula, I'll let you free if you give me a little money. And Paul gave him none. And then he would not make a decision. He tells them, all right, I've heard your case, Tertullus. I've heard your defense, Paul, and I don't have a decision. I'll make my decision when Lysias comes down. Guess what? We just, we just covered in Acts 23 that Lysias has already given you his decision. He's already given you a written letter, and here you are stalling. You will not vindicate this man, right? You will not free him, even though none of these charges should stick. You know why? Because look at the end of that chapter. It says he wanted to do the Jews a favor. And so he kept Paul in prison for two years and would not release him. He left office and left Paul to the next governor named Festus. And Festus had to deal with Paul because for two years, Felix did nothing. And he procrastinating that for two years he goes and reasons with Paul. And he says he knows the way of God accurately, that his wife is a Jew, and that for two years they're reasoning about the law, they're reasoning about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And it's actually Felix who says, Paul, no more. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I'm sending you away, and I'll come and talk to you when I want to talk to you. Do you see what's happening here? This judge is corrupt. He keeps putting off trusting in Jesus. That he's bought into the lies of the lawyer. How do we look at this? On the one hand, beloved, I think this is warning. It's warning for us. These are not men ignorant of the word. Luke says Felix was, had an accurate knowledge of the way. The high priest knew the promises, knew the covenants, 
And what you're starting to see is that mere knowledge alone does not make us upright in heart. And this is a warning. It's a warning for those who are not excited about the kingdom of God and all that God is doing to turn the world right side up. It's a warning for those who are putting off faith in Christ and thinking that tomorrow will come and tomorrow will come and tomorrow will come and tomorrow will come until tomorrow doesn't come and your heart is hardened. It's a warning for all of us. And up against this, you see Paul, which is our second point, the courageous apostle. And he's different. He is head and shoulders courageous and upright and truthful and disciplined and patient and zealous. You remember how quickly these Jews want things to happen? We'll kill him tomorrow. Five days later, we got, a, we got a, a, an attorney, and we're going to make light work of him. Your Honor, hear us briefly and make a decision. And here's Paul in prison for two years. Whoa. Two years of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. He is not in a rush. He is living by the clock of King Jesus. You remember the flattery, the opening words of the lawyer? Your excellency, your wisdom, your provision, your grace, your peace. Look at Paul's opening words in verse 10. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, there is no flattery. <laughs> I cheerfully make my defense. You, you, you see that? Paul isn't out to flatter this judge. And then he moves towards his truthful defense. He says, first, your honor, with respect to being a plague and stirring up riots. He says, your honor, I've only been here 12 days, like 12 days since I went to worship in Jerusalem. And they didn't find me disputing with anyone there or stirring any crowd up there, either in the temple or in the synagogue. So they're wrong. With respect to being a, a ringleader of this new sect that they call the Nazarenes, I will confess, your honor that I follow the way. I follow Jesus. But this is not new, your honor. In all fairness, I worship the God of our fathers. My faith is ancient, and I believe everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. I believe in the hope of God. I believe when Isaiah says that a servant is coming who will suffer. I believe that Moses says someone like him will come who is greater. I believe in King David's son who will sit on the throne. You see, your honor, I actually believe what they believe, but I believe it more accurately. And I did not profane their temple. They know I purified myself. Furthermore, your honor, look at verse 17. And this is breathtaking. Now, after several years, I did come down and I came bringing alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified. 
Now, what is Paul saying in verse 17? He's saying that after several years, he had been doing ministry in Asia, around the world. And then he came to Jerusalem. But he did not come to Jerusalem empty-handed. You want to know why? He came with offerings and alms. Now, why would Paul come to Jerusalem with money? Because he took up a collection from those Gentile churches because the famine was affecting Jerusalem and there was not enough food in the land and taxes were increasing. And what Paul is telling this judge, when I came, I came with money to be a blessing to the very people who were persecuting me this day. Those are the types of people that Jesus is saving and rescuing. He's making them generous. He's making them open-handed. And they sent me to be a blessing to these people down here who want nothing to do with them. In your honor, it wasn't the Christians starting riots. Your honor, it was the pagans and it was the Jews starting riots. When I came and the gospel came, the gospel set captives free. And you want to know who started the riots? It was those who wanted us to be enslaved. When the gospel came, Jesus restored this slave girl to faith. And it was his, her handlers who turned the town in an uproar. Your Honor, you got the wrong people on trial. If anyone needs to be on trial, it's not me. And you would think, right, that after Paul does this, that he's going to rest his case. But he doesn't. He actually goes on the offensive. Look at verses 24 and 25. So Felix did not know what to do with Paul and put Paul in a prison. And you would think that Paul, under the thumb of a judge, will be resolved to go to a prison cell and just be quiet. But notice what the text says Paul's behavior was. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard Paul speak about faith in Jesus. And Paul reasoned with him. So Paul has defended the name of Jesus and has been put in prison. And then he goes on the offensive. He begins to witness to the very dude who is corrupt, who has his hand and his thumb on him, who is cutting side deals with the Jews. Paul is like, well, I'm not going to waste my shot. If I'm going to be here for two years, your honor, you might as well hear this good news about Jesus, too. And so he reasons with him around what? Verse 25 righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, and faith. And Felix was alarmed. Now, why? Why would Paul reason with him about righteousness? Because he was an unrighteous man. He wanted a bribe. Why would he reason with him about self-control? Because you just took that man's wife and you lack self-control. Why would he reason with him about judgment? Because if you don't bow the knee to Jesus... You're going to be judged. And so what Paul does is apply the gospel to this man in love. You see, I think what's going on here is that this picture of a judge 
and a lawyer and charges and Paul on the stand, I think Paul flips it. And I think he says, oh, Felix, I'm on the stand right now. But one day you're going to be on the stand. And Tertullus is not going to be the prosecuting attorney. God's law is. And it's going to provide evidence after evidence after evidence of your lack of self-control and your unrighteousness and your refusal to bow the knee to Jesus. And Jesus will take your place. He will be the judge who makes the ruling. And if you don't bow the knee and kiss the hand of the king, just like you put me in prison for two years, he's going to put you somewhere forever. And that is when Felix says, no more, out of my face. And you know what? It doesn't take rocket scientists to see that Paul is different. He's cut from a different cloth. What adjectives come to mind when we just stop and look at his conduct in that courtroom and in prison? What bubbles up to you about him? He's courageous. He has integrity. He will not give money to the judge to get freedom. And Paul probably got money bags. You see, because in Roman courts, if you were sent to prison, Rome did not foot the bill to keep you in prison. People who loved you had to come support you. And so for Paul to stay in prison for two years, do you know who's, who's, who's assisting him so that he can write? Do you know who's coming to visit him? It's the church. And so when Felix sees that this guy is getting provisions, he's like, give me some. And Paul says, I will give you none. Paul has integrity. He's loving he loves Jesus enough to defend his name. He loves neighbor enough to tell the truth. He endures the injustices and the lies, and he does not grow bitter towards the Lord. He is hopeful that whatever happens to him, he has a sure and steady anchor for his soul. He is steady. And look, guys, I know you've heard me say that the way to read the Bible is not be like David and slay your giants. I, but, and this is a but, I fear that that thinking also undercuts our ability to look at Christians who are flesh and blood like you and me who were put in the crucible of hardship and loss and sadness. And they are hopeful, they have integrity, and they have courage, and they are loving, and they are kind, and they are truth-telling. You see, the Bible says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, 
the, the matter of conduct we had before you was an example that you might follow suit. And so all I want us to do right now is to just look. What do you see in him that you want more of in your life? Man, I wish I had this kind of integrity. Lord, I wish I could just wait on you for two years. You got me locked up for two years. I wish I could love my neighbors so much that I will open my mouth and speak the truth of the gospel. I wish that I could love the glory of your name so much that I would defend it. I wish that I could wait on the Lord. I wish that I did not need to use manipulation or flattery to get ahead. I wish that I could trust you, that you have established the lot for me. Do you see what's beautiful about Paul in this passage? And what do you want more of in your life? Here's the question. Where does this come from? What causes courage? Integrity, hope, steadiness, love, and patience, and discipline, and self-control. What causes us to be able to endure injustice and lies and not grow bitter and discouraged? And I'm not telling you to go read a book entitled 10 Ways to Be More Courageous. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is what if the conduct you see in Paul is healthy fruit on a healthy tree? What is the root that's causing this fruit to blossom and flourish in a prison, in a courtroom, before peasants and princes, in the face of lies and injustice? What has Paul tapped into that is coming out of him? This is our last point. It's the resurrection of Jesus. That's the difference between Paul and everyone else in the passage. It's a life-changing, eternity-altering, hope-giving, comfort-providing, courage-fueling, truth-empowering, patience-yielding, sin-forgiving, integrity-prompting reality that Paul's heart has been transformed by the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. He was dead. He did die to cover his sins, but on the third day he rose. For Paul, he could not stop basking in the reality that rigor mortis was reversed, that the heart of Jesus pumped blood again. His lungs were filled with oxygen again. His core temperature reached 98.4 again. The synapses in his brains fired again. He was carried into the tomb powerless, but he came out powerful. That all power was in his hands, all power in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And when Jesus steps out of the tomb, a new day has dawned upon all of time. And that makes a difference. And here's what you'll notice. Take my word for it. In every single defense that Paul does in this section we're in in Acts, you want to know what comes up in every chapter? Resurrection. 
He says, your honor, I'm on trial because of the resurrection. He says, your honor, they believe in a resurrection. Only I believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In the next chapter, when, when King Agrippa and, and Festus are talking, he says, look, they're arguing about their religion and a certain Jesus who is dead, but whom Paul asserts is alive. Before King Agrippa in Acts 26, 8, Paul says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In Acts 26, 23, Christ must suffer, and after that, he, be, he will be the first to rise from the dead, and he will proclaim light and hope to people and to the Gentiles. In every single chapter, Paul talks about resurrection. That's the difference. Everyone else does not embrace the resurrection. But Paul does. He says, we have been united in a death like his. We will be united in a resurrection like his. Philippians 3, oh Lord, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. It's tempting to think that the resurrection of Jesus was just a blessing in the past or it's just a blessing in the future. And that would be heresy. You see, when you read the Bible, Paul says the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, it dwells in you right now. That the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies now. Think about that. That when Paul is on trial, that what you see coming out is this evidence that resurrection has happened. And you see it in the passage. Look at verses 15 through 16. There will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust alike. And then look at verse 16. Paul says so. And that so means that he's connecting what he's about to say to what he just said. Because there is a resurrection and because Jesus has been resurrected and because resurrection power is mine right here and now. So right here and now I make it my ambition. I take Take pains now to have a clear conscience towards God and man. That's the difference right there. That Jesus' resurrection has relevance for God's people, not just in the future, not just in the past, but right now you are called into life. Right now, the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. Right now, you can go into courtrooms and you can go into prisons and you can speak to princes and you can speak to lawyers and you can go through hell on earth, but you can do so with an optimism and a hope and a pardon and a cleansing and a confidence and a courage that is only ours because of Jesus. So how does this apply? Suppose you're afraid of dying and you got that doctor's report that you dread and you've never died before. 
and you're afraid. And someone else has gotten the same report, and they're afraid. But you, you, beloved, you can connect your death with the ministry of Jesus. That my Savior says, those who die in him, though they die, we shall live. And you can face the same thing differently. Suppose you're losing your memory and Alzheimer's and dementia are setting in and you can't remember your kids' names. You can't remember words. And you have this fleeting thought that I'm going to forget Jesus. And then you hear Jesus' words to you. All that the Father gives me will come and I will lose not one of them. And I will raise it up on the last day. You may forget me, but I will never forget you, says Jesus. You may be like Paul, and you're on the receiving end of lies and wrongdoing. And the temptation is to take out vengeance. But because you know that vengeance is the Lord's, and that all men and women will be raised, the just and the unjust alike, and must give an account, you are freed to not be bitter. And suppose some besetting sin has entangled you. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. And you can fight by the Spirit. Your story is still being written. The Spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. But greater is the one who is in you than he who is in the world. That same power is not just in the future. It's yours now maybe you feel compelled to have a hard conversation and you're worried about what they may say or they may think the resurrection of jesus says the worst thing that can ever happen to you happened on calvary who is man to fear them the resurrection changes everything Its relevance is not just in the future when you stand before Jesus. It's yours now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the way in which we see a resurrection power being tapped into even in a passage like this. Father, we confess that if this were us, that we would gripe and probably complain. We probably want to fight fire with fire. We might even be tempted to take a bribe. And yet by your spirit, you show us that there is another way. There's another way to enter courtrooms and bedrooms and boardrooms and classrooms. It's the way of the cross, the, the, the reality of the resurrection. 
Father, my prayer for our people this week is that we would experience it and see it and taste it more deeply. Make us a people, Lord, who walk in your power. We love you. Amen.